Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Season 1, Episode 13, Benchmark Megafactories in Row Motion. We've also included an interview done on Investing News Network by Priscilla Barrera of Benchmark's Vivas Kumar, who recently joined from Tesla, talking about the importance of qualification. The Benchmark Minerals Intelligence just finished their North American World Tour, which kind of started in Washington, D.C. We've commented about that. I was also there in New York, and uh, they went to other cities in North America. But we had the opportunity to speak with Casper Rawls, who actually wasn't at the conference, but has written a great deal on cathodes and megafactories in addition to his work on cobalt. And we also interviewed Adam Panay at Row Motion, which is affiliated um, but separate from Benchmark. So we're going to have a bit of commentary there. Rodney has written two additional notes here. What One theme we're going to talk about now before we go into those interviews is that Europe and Germany in particular looks to be kind of the new China uh, with some very significant announcements that uh, we'll detail a bit. But w- why don't you start, Rodney, having written a couple of notes um, on Seeking Alpha and, and LinkedIn? Yes, Howard. I uh, have been just noting and uh, discussing some of the planned uh, battery plant expansions and new plants going up in Europe. You've got uh, some pretty big capacity outlined. Northfolds getting a 30 uh, 350 million euro uh, loan assistance from um, the EIB. You've got uh, CATL talking about a potentially enormous expansion to as much as 100 gigawatt hours by 2025 based on demand. There's also a VW, which if you remember, there was a spat about SK Innovations and uh, others if they were to partner with other with the competitor. So they have decided to go with Northvolt. They're talking about a 12 gigawatt factory to start, gigawatt hour factory to start, growing to 30. So all in all, uh, with existing capacity and planned, you've got about 210 gigawatt hours uh, planned for the future. Um, that, of course, will take some time. But again, as we've discussed, and you know, with Adam later on in the show, is what the sort of lead times need to be in order to secure the uh, the feedstock to uh, supply those uh, battery plants, I guess, going via cathode producers. And uh, if we see anything like the sort of scale that that they're looking at in terms of ramping up, we could well start seeing uh, you know, the supply shortfall thesis coming into play, especially uh, given the very strict and stringent um, criteria for uh, meeting, you know, battery grade uh, for the OEMs. Okay. And uh, there were a couple of, if we could just say specifically announcements, that Fiat Chrysler had some consideration with respect to fines. What was that story? Uh, so what's happening is the uh, the EU uh, emission standards uh, that kick in next year, I think it's 95 grams per kilometre, is uh, is being implemented, and all of the uh, you know car fleets that aren't in compliance are fined. So 
There was an announcement recently that Fiat Chrysler would look to pool its vehicles with Tesla in order to avoid fines they quoted in the article of as high as $2.2 billion in 2021-2022. I'm not sure what the exact nature of the agreement is with Tesla, but I think the inference was they could be paying them a few hundred million dollars to, to avoid those multi-billion dollar fines. Interesting. Uh, at the Benchmark New York conference, I ran into a old friend of mine from business school who's been a fund manager um, at a major kind of New York institution, mutual fund, and, and he's been tracking the EV space you know, longer than, than I have, I think since 2006 and seven. And he just called me all hot and bothered like he was two or three years ago that uh, he had just met with Ganfeng, who talked about the, this agreement with Volkswagen. He was basically saying everyone's focused right now short term on the subsidies in China, you know, being reduced and, and that's impacting sentiment. He was kind of like Europe and, and Germany, you know, is the new China. Like, whereas China is very opaque, it's hard to figure out what's going on there. Germany and Europe actually have very specific organized targets um, for EV rollout, you know, battery uh, plants, um, you know, and then there's emissions, what you just described, fine. So it's very self-evident to him that massive investments are coming and a key thematic from the whole world tour was that, you know, a shortage is likely because there's not enough investment, you know, taking place today. So it's just good to hear him kind of reinforce that. I think the news coming out of Europe in the past number of weeks has been underappreciated as reflected in, in the, the stock prices of lithium, but just in the general uh, you know, narrative lost you know, amongst the trade war. I would agree with that, Howard, because if you look at VW, they have recently announced that they are planning on producing 22 million EVs by, I think, 2028, or they said over the next decade. I can't remember the exact date of the announcement, but considering they're currently or going to be on sort of 100, 150,000 only in the near term, and they're targeting sort of 3 million vehicles by 2025. If you, if you, you know, sort of draw the line and get to 22 million by 2028, then you can get an idea that, you know, the years uh, post-2025 are going to be enormous. But if you're looking at you know 60 kilowatt hours per car on 3 million vehicles, they alone would need 180 gigawatts of battery, which at 0.9 intensity, you're at 162,000 tons of lithium demand for VW alone at tw in 2025. Now, the point that I keep trying to make is if you look at lithium supply in 2017, 2018, how much of that is hydroxide and how much of that total supply is battery grade? And the truth is a lot of supply in the past has been for ceramics, grease, et cetera, applications that are not uh, energy storage related. I mean, 2018 saw, I think, roughly 60,000 tons of lithium hydroxide production total, including, um, you know, non-battery grade. So, you know, VW alone is going to want, and most of it will be hydroxide. Some of it may not if they do 62, you know, carbonate if it's, you know, if hydroxide isn't that available. But the truth is that is three times the entire hydroxide market last year. 
It's crazy. And uh, VW, very, very serious. Lithium being the irreplaceable element for the uh, electric future and also their preference for hard rock and uh, locally sourced, if possible. So um, I had an opportunity to, to meet again with David Archer of Savannah, who is at uh, presenting at the the benchmark conference, and, and that's a um, you know a story that we've talked about a little bit in the past, and, and one uh, in Europe that I'm I'm watching very closely, and there are a couple of others. European lithium stories have been less prominent than in other geographies in the world, and I think that's going to change. The key the key element on that as well is, as VW stated, and you mentioned this, I think, possibly in our last podcast, is how. How many times they use the word sustainable in their in their sort of what I call lithium manifesto, and uh, they are looking to and they have stated as much that they are looking to um, implement as much of the supply chain in Europe as possible, and that means and and they highlight their sort of the new focus being mining, chemical processing, and and cathodes. So they are looking to move it to Europe clearly. You know, in the, in the backdrop of the Northvolt deal, they did the Ganfen hydroxide offtake, you know, the MOU, so that they are signing up for 10 years to make sure that their battery plant, when they kick off, is, uh, I, gu- I guess, fed through uh, some cathode uh, agreement and then onto their battery plant. On sustainability, absolutely agree. Livent CEO Paul Graves uh, made a lot of statements about the sustainability of brine uh, in some ways to kind of counteract the VW commentary about uh, hard rock. So there's that debate is not over. Um, I think the world, and we both agree, need both brines and, and hard rock. But uh, it was interesting to hear a, a direct kind of uh, impassioned support for brine um, that, that, that Paul did uh, in contrast to you know, VW's statement, um, you know, in preference for for hard rock. Volvo, which is owned by China's Geely, uh, announced a major battery um, offtakes. You know, for the next 10 years, they're getting their batteries from CATL and LG Chem. So China-backed Volvo, you know, buying half from China-backed CATL and the other half from LG Chem. But just the fact that they have secured supply uh, for 10 years uh, and also have made very, I think they said something like 50% of their fleet is going to be electric by 2025 um, and then 100%, I forget, by, by what year. Let's not forget that Mercedes-Benz has now said that they would like to be carbon neutral by 2039. And whilst, you know, that is some way away, you know, they're saying, and it does depend on, on uh, life cycles, of each manufacturer, but they're saying for them that's less than three cycles away. So I guess they sort of average seven years per, you know, per per life cycle for for cars. So that also is a meaningful change because to get to carbon neutral is not is not an insignificant task. If you look at the way that China tackled the whole EV thematic. It's government. You know, it's government that puts the stricter regulations, you know, the fines, et cetera, the emission standards, then it's subsidies to go with it, and then it's infrastructure, charging infrastructure, et cetera. And what Europe is doing, as you've mentioned, is it's mirroring on those three fronts.
are here with Adam Panay of Row Motion Research, uh, who is affiliated to some degree with Benchmark Minerals, and maybe some of you have seen some of his work or him uh, at recent world tours. Why don't you describe, Adam, a bit what Row Motion does and the focus here, and then uh, Rodney will lead the questions. Sure. So Row Motion is an independent publisher and consultancy for the electric vehicle sector. Uh, we focus on everything that uh, is in the EV supply chain from the battery cell, so when the battery cell leaves the mega factory, uh, to the EV platform. So we're looking at uh, energy density within the battery cell. We're looking at the interaction between the battery pack and the vehicle. And we're looking at the vehicle itself, which is uh, often overlooked in some of these discussions. So what's happening with the electric vehicle uh, platforms. We provide a, a quarterly outlook service to 2040, which gives... Uh, an outlook for EV sales, um, battery demand from those EVs, and also battery chemistry as well. Uh, and we also provide monthly assessments. Two key ones at the moment are our EV energy density monthly assessment, which tracks battery pack sizes, um, as well as um, updates from what's going on in, in, in developments in that sector. And also our EV battery chemistry monthly assessment, which tracks battery market share uh, um, by chemistry. Um, and the way we work is we have a core database uh, which we track over 450 passenger car and light duty vehicle, battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, um, and also 200 plus uh, buses and coaches and medium and heavy duty vehicle uh, models. Uh, and for each of those, we're collecting a series of metrics, battery chemistry, battery pack size, range, cost, um, battery, man uh, battery manufacturer, and so on. Um, and so every month we get our sales data, we plug it into our database and it pumps out uh, what we need for our assessments. And those assessments inform our long-term outlook. That's great. And I think your headline number for 2025, uh, which seems to be a, a focus on EV penetration, is, is what? For 2025, we're saying 18% penetration for battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. C622 is the dominant cathode in 2025, you know, relative to 811? By 2025, I'd, I'd say so, because, I mean, and this is one thing that, you know, I've been on the world tour this last week in the US and Canada, and one of the key things, you, you know, you find yourself repeating is that, that there's this idea that, you know, new chemistry gets released, let's say 811 comes out in 2021, 2022, let's just say that, then it needs to be included on the vehicle platform, which, so there's a qualification process that may take one to two years. Let's say that's already happened by 2022, which, uh, you know, given that the fact that you're building out battery capacity to make 811 that doesn't exist already, um, there is some qualification happening while the, while the capacity is being built out. Um, I know that for a fact from some of the projects we've been working on. So you have automotive uh, manufacturers and battery manufacturers working together to try and get 811 to work. So let's say it gets released in 2022 and is uh, then put on a vehicle platform. Then you, you, you're you still selling vehicles, so um, uh, legacy vehicles that have 111 at the moment and then 523 and 622. At that point, the majority of vehicles being sold will likely be 622. Each year you have the release of new models. It, it, it's not like you can just put a new chemistry into an old vehicle. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Once the chemistry is set for a vehicle platform, until that vehicle platform is refreshed, 
you don't get a new chemistry into it. Looking out, uh, would you say that uh, the OEMs are now unified in their choice of cathode chemistry? I mean, the NCA is going to definitely stay with Tesla, I would have thought. Outside of North America, NCM, yeah, it, you know, it's already over 50% of the market. We'll only continue to increase market share. And then it's, you know, it'll be a play out between uh, which chemistry within that takes the most market share. But, you know, eventually it will move towards 811. There's likely to be more LFP in the market in, let's say, three, three years' time uh, than there has been in the last year or so because it works for certain types of vehicles at a certain cost and price uh, range. Looking at uh, the average battery pack size has grown substantially in the past few years. Mm. How much of that change do you think is related to the changes in EV subsidies in China? Yeah, I think that's been key, particularly in 2018. So if you look at a chart of growth, average sold uh, pack sizes over time, is it you know, an ongoing increase? But from 2018 onwards, you see that growth jump up fairly significantly, mainly because the subsidy regime changed in 2017. So you saw... In 2017, there was a bit of a weight on uh, growth in pack sizes because there was a, a pre-selling of older vehicles with smaller pack sizes before the new regime kicked in. And then from then onwards, you've seen a development uh, uh, of the car manufacturers and battery manufacturers trying to reach the thresholds to get as much of the subsidy as possible. And now you're seeing that the subsidy is being removed or, or is at least been scaled back, both in terms of the actual amount of money that's on the table but also the range of vehicles that are able to uh, receive the subsidy. And by next year, you know, it's very likely that the subsidy may be removed in its present form altogether. You've seen uh, a stimulus from the subsidy in terms of increasing battery pack sizes and therefore range. Um, but now that's been removed, you, you might see a rebalancing in the sense that one of the things we're hearing is that, you know, the trend in the last couple of years has been moving to high nickel, so high, highly dense uh, batteries, uh, over time. In China specifically, there's talk of the reintroduction of LFP for smaller vehicles because it's cheap, uh, it's very reliable, and it cycles well. So for the lower end of the market, for you know, uh, cheaper vehicles with lower ranges, you may very well see the reintroduction of LFP in a, in a bigger way than uh, you've seen it removed from the market in the last couple of years. But you know, worldwide, the trend is towards more dense uh, vehicle, uh, battery packs, um, higher nickel, um, and obviously uh, at some point the move to 811 uh, when it's released commercially. And uh, with the shift in, in cathodes to the high nickel content towards the 811, what is the shift in energy density associated? So if you, at, at present, you're hearing that 811 when it comes will be in the 280 watt hours per kilogram range. Uh, that's a 50, 55 to 60% increase over NCM 111, which, you know, really only in a, in a few years is a really significant increase. If you look at the fall in battery prices that we're seeing, you know, they talk about the learning curve, et cetera. How much of the fall in prices is related to volume and what yeah. percentage is related to technological advancement? Raw materials still make up the majority of the cost of the battery cell, but a lot of that is due to the fact that uh, there's very high yield losses in battery manufacturing. If you can thrift the more expensive raw materials and get better energy density because you're using more nickel, then obviously that drives down the cost. There will be improvements in 
cost just from the fact that there's less wastage in the production process, and there will be improvements in cost from the fact that you're getting economies of scale as well. The move to 622 to 811 is less radical than the improvements we'll see in reducing yield losses from raw materials uh, in, in the battery manufacturing process and the economies of scale. What is Ro Motion's assumption on lithium intensity per kilowatt hour? Broadly speaking, it's one uh, kilogram per kilowatt hour. Are there any trends that listeners and investors uh, should be focusing on now? One thing that's key and that gets overlooked is what's happening on the vehicle itself. So let's, let's say the, the cost of the, uh, an electric vehicle is 30% of the battery, is 30% in the battery, let's say, for now. Uh, that still leaves you 70% where you can have cost savings in order to drive uh, electric vehicle sales penetration. What you're seeing from various OEMs by 2022, 2023, the addition of pure EV platforms. So at the moment, there's really only a handful of models that are actual pure EV platforms. Most are internal combustion engine vehicles that had a battery fitted into them at some point. So that's certainly suboptimum from a cost point of view. It's also suboptimum from a performance point of view as well. Volkswagen's won the uh, modular electric drive kit that they're bringing out 2022 with the ID Neo, uh, or 2021. That will see significant cost reductions in terms of the vehicle itself, and also likely improvements in performance because you know the vehicle is calibrated specifically to take a battery. Uh, GM have got their BD3, um, which they're going to launch 20 models off, they're saying. Again, similar, similar thing. That's a key thing to look for in terms of driving down the cost of battery electric vehicles and therefore making them more competitive against internal combustion engine vehicles. Do you think that those two names, GM and VW, we had an earlier uh, podcast with Peter Campbell, the FT Transport correspondent, who had mm. mentioned those, those two companies, which are also the ones who have the biggest China presence, were the most advanced in their EV thinking. Um, but so in your mind, in terms of watching, is EV penetration tracking to your 18% forecast in 2025? Or are, are those two companies ones to watch? I mean, just on that first point about whether it's tracking towards EV penetration that I stated at 18%, yeah, I think we're, we're bang in line. So the forecast for 2019, we're looking at 3% penetration. And we're already up and around that based on the sales figures this year so far. There's a few other things to look out for, really. So if you look at what BMW are doing, they're taking a slightly different approach. They're, they're developing a, a, a platform which can take both plug-in hybrid electric, uh, IC, and uh, pure battery electric. So that's an interesting uh, one to look out for. And, of course, the Chinese OEMs as well, Beijing Automotive, Geely. There's a, there's a number there that are, you know, are pushing ahead with their electrification strategy. When would you project that uh, that EVs are match uh, internal combustion engines for price? Yeah, so we've done an analysis on this. And actually, if any of your listeners want to see the uh, the chart and, or anything, if they sign up to rowmotion.com and get started, I can send them a presentation we did on the World, uh, on the World Tour. We're looking at 2024 for the crossover. You've got the sell price coming down. Internal combustion engine vehicles are going to become more expensive over time because, you know, the emissions legislation is only going to get tighter. But let's just focus on EVs for a moment. One of, one of the aspects of the analysis we've done is we've also included a figure for OEM margin. And the point is that this is effectively a loss leader for OEMs until roughly about 2025. So you're, you're, you're seeing them making losses on these vehicles uh, over time. 
which enables them to sell them at a relatively competitive price by 2024. So this is not, you know, pure EV washing its face in terms of the economics. There is some uh, lost lead there from, from an OEM perspective. But, I, but over time, as scale builds up uh, for those new pure EV platforms, you'll start to see OEM's margins improve as well. Great. Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, to be continued, look forward to seeing you on the next yeah. world tour. And uh, everybody who cares about this space, Motion and Adam have a, a great new product and, and research offering. Thanks for having me, guys. very happy to have here Casper Rawls from Benchmark Minerals. Okay, thank you for inviting me on the show. As a first question, we've been all following the incredible rise in the number of mega factories planned between now and 2023 and 2028, but there seems to be a discrepancy in the, uh, in the gigawatt hour requirements and what we see as lithium supply going forward. What are your thoughts on that? If we look typically at a mine, I get uh, best case scenario for you to get a mine up and running would be probably seven years. But, you know, realistically, it takes a lot longer than that. With a battery plant, you know, we're looking at somewhere between two and five years, depending on the region it's being developed and access to capital. So, you know, with these raw materials, it's not necessarily a question is, is there enough in the ground? Are we going to be able to, you know, fulfill the demand of all these different battery plants? It's, it's getting getting the raw materials to the plants on time. And that's really where, you know, at the moment, the problems sit without significant further investment in the supply chain. At what point does a planned mega factory need to actually lock down and secure its, its feedstock uh, materials before it, it goes into construction? I think it varies across the supply chain for, you know, a couple of different reasons. I think if you are an entirely new operation, which doesn't already have a pre-existing supply chain, um, in order to obtain funding to um, to build your plant, unless you have happen to have the access to the cap to capital, which is generally quite rare, um, you will need to lock down raw material supply contracts well before you start construction. Now, um, if you are uh, an incumbent, one of the say one of the big manufacturers already has who already has a well established supply chain, um, you would look to increase your in incremental tons with your suppliers. On a contractual basis, probably 12 months before, maybe slightly before that. But obviously, you would have discussions with with your suppliers well before that to to ensure that you can you can have access to those raw materials. So it does vary, but it um, you know I'd say it's you know typically a shorter time for someone who's already in production. And the new companies, of which there are many coming to the supply chain, uh, are needing to lock down, um, take or typically take or pay contracts. If we look at the uh, the split in uh, in mega factories going forward, uh, is it fair to say that the majority of those are M NCM and uh, NCA cathode? So if we look all the way through to that 2028 timeframe, NCM capacity uh, is around 80% of all of the mega factories we track. We track uh, NCA is a bit low; it's still um, second behind NCM. It's at well, it's quite a lot lower. We're seeing around. 10 or 11% of capacity, and then the other technologies falling behind that. EVs are really dominating this picture at the moment. There's no, there's not necessarily a guarantee that NCM or NCA will be used in, in energy storage, particularly on larger scale applications. But at the moment, it is winning the day. Um, but for the EV picture, NCM is by far the kind of cathode type of choice of the EV industry. 
in order to uh, supply the, the required materials for that, you're going to need uh, high-spec uh, lithium hydroxide. Yes, exactly. So for the higher nickel um, cathode types of N NCM, such as 811, obviously, 622 you can use either, but um, depending on prices and, and kind of your, the manufacturer, um, they may have a preference. But, yeah, so you, the key thing is, is, is getting that battery-grade purity of, of uh, lithium hydroxide, which is already challenging for a number of producers, but is getting more and more challenging every day. So those uh, impurity requirements that you see for lithium chemicals going into the battery supply chain are becoming more and more stringent as time goes on. So certainly as we get towards the end of that time frame, I'd imagine you know, we'd be looking at parts per million impurities and you need a very high-grade uh, and very well-controlled process to be able to ensure that you can deliver that in a consistent way uh, over the long term. So as we move to a higher percentage of NCM and uh, NCA, and particularly NCM811, what mm -hmm. do you think are sort of the limits to uh, energy density that's achievable? those? I think CATL recently uh, stated they had a form of technology which is uh, around 245 watt hours per kilo uh, energy density, which is, you know, if you compare that to 523, which would be below 200, is quite a big step change. Now, the problem is with energy density or, you know, increasing to or moving towards increasing the nickel, reducing the cobalt, moving towards 811, is that the more and more pressure you put on the cell, the, the higher risk there is of cell failure. That, you know, doesn't necessarily just mean um, a fire, which people think that we do. It also means the, the cell not lasting as long as it needs to, its life cycle being shortened. So there's a, there's a trade-off between energy density and cell performance with ensuring that the battery performs for as long as it needs to and safely, uh, and safely as well. So I, I still think we've got a way to go that, you know, energy density won't just come from the cathode. It will come from pack design, uh, thermal management, pack software. There's a number of different avenues to explore before we get all the way down kind of as far as lithium ion can go. But I think, you know, there's still a way to go yet. And, you know, 811 is, is one of those routes for certain. What do you, what do you guys forecast as... Uh current lithium intensity per kilowatt hour and do you think that can be in any way thrifted going forward? You know the key thing is really with lithium is, is not necessarily supply um, it's more that battery grade um, I don't think there's much opportunity to thrift away from the volumes that are needed and, and in, in fact in the longer term if we if we look at what's happening in battery development um, so we're, we're talking 10 plus year horizon here, so it is some way to go. But with solid state, we actually think that lithium intensity will increase with the introduction of solid state technology. So I don't think there's much opportunity to reduce the amount of lithium needed. Other minerals, you know, particularly cobalt, of course, that's up for debate. But yeah, I think um, the reality is that the, the demand growth for, for lithium and indeed all of the battery minerals is, is very significant in the coming decade and, and well beyond. Two questions. One is just on Korea generally, and then secondly, with respect to the United States, SK Innovation announced their Georgia plant, but in general, the U.S. has been lagging. So from a, a Japanese, a Chinese, you know, uh, and, and, a, and a Korean battery, but also from a Umicor and, and other cathode producer perspective, are, what are you hearing from them or think uh, are prospective plans for investments in the United States, you know, cathode and battery supply chain? 
Yeah. So um, starting with the first part, the, the Korean companies that are kind of really leading the, the charge in the battery supply chain. Um, yeah, as you rightly say, you have LG Chem, Samsung, uh, SK Innovation on the battery front, and POSCO uh, kind of on the chemical side. I think the, actually the reality is that LG Chem were probably the first, in our opinion, to be to, to develop a global strategy for battery production. So LG Chem seems to have been the most aggressive in terms of capacity um, commitments, but also that kind of global strategy. So you've seen, uh, obviously, there's two. Ma well, there's one major plant in uh, the Ch in China, which is in production in Nanjing, which they're also building another one next door to it. Um, but also located in Poland, Korea, the U.S. Um, yeah, a number of different plants and a big global strategy. Now, Samsung. That's not to say Samsung and SK Innovation aren't as aggressive as aren't aggressive as well, but they haven't committed to quite as much capacity publicly anyway. Um, I think it's important for the uh, Korean companies to act now. They actually have, um, I think, well, from our data, we think they have, uh, are able to produce at lower cost than their major Chinese rivals, which gives them that competitive edge. So it's important for them to be ready for when the automotive companies want to sign those big deals um, and that those typically those bigger deals will come from 2022 onwards so um, they'll be longer term and for bigger quantities and more specific about what they want um, and I think you know that's the strategy is to be in place now even if they have really underutilized capacity uh, in order to ensure that they can fulfill those orders as and when they come in in the coming years. Um, the second part of your question, kind of focusing on the U.S., the U.S., I mean, up and well, really even now is very much gigafactory dependent on, on battery production. Um, as you say, SK Innovation have committed to their plant in Georgia, which sounds as though it could be a, a pretty big one. Um, there's, there's been kind of some big capacity commitments already, but um, kind of behind the scenes as well, um, you know, in not not official announcements by the company, but you can see in the media, if you look, there have been some um, suggestions that it could be a very large plant. Now, they certainly won't be the only one. I'm sure there's a number of other, particularly Asian companies that are looking at developing production capacity in the US, um, but not only, of course, not only Asian, there are other cell development um, production companies. Um, and you need that. You need that local production basis to meet the local market, but also to reduce cost uh, and and, uh, and be able to be competitive in, in the regional market. In terms of cathode production, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would think in the US it would be less than 1% of global production. That's really lagged behind. But it's not that's not the only place. I mean, we've seen that in Europe as well. Um, Europe, uh, battery chemical and, and cathode um, production capacity is, is very, very small, same in the US. And really that an even bigger proportion of that um, capacity is held typically in Asia. So um, we will need to see investments throughout the supply chain to develop that U.S. Um, battery, well, to, to ensure U.S. battery supply are, you know, in, in, to help the automotive industry to also ensure security of supply as well. So um, there's probably a lot, of, a lot to come from the U.S. in terms of announcements on both battery and cathode. I'm a big proponent and, and believe, you know, you could have this raw material to chemical to cathode, you know, to battery to EV, you know, in Europe, mm -hmm. and you could have it in the United States because you have, you know, the manufacturing. You, you can't have that really in Australia uh, or Chile, you know, et cetera. So the, the, the dream of having it all, you know, in, on one continent, the, the linchpin of that dream is obviously we need a bit more battery, but the cathode is really the most scarce. So 
who besides Umicore, and if you can comment on their recent kind of quarterly commentary, which uh, some people are, are, are viewing, you know, a negative demand, what are the dynamics, the pl- who are the players, and what is their thought process as to why Cathode has been so slow to come in, you know, in Europe and, and the U.S.? Yeah, so Umicore is one of the key players. I know they they gave a profit warning, which was focused around um, falling cobalt prices and uh, also slower than expected ramp up in orders. And we see a lot of the cathode production capacity, you know, as we do everywhere else, housed in Asia. Um, big players include SMM in China. You've got companies like uh, GEM, uh, Rombai, Huayu producing cathodes. B and M would be another one. Uh, yeah, there's you know there's a large amount of uh, different cathode players. I mean, we've seen huge investments from these cathode companies going into to Asia. Yeah, you know, I guess we have to remember as well. Typically, those cathode companies are not as big as the battery companies, who typically are not as big as the uh, auto companies. So, for them to fund a multi-continent approach is probably not realistic. Um, sorry, I should have added as well another cathode. Obviously, another cathode player is present in Europe and the US is BASF. Um, Johnson Matthey as well. The, you know, it's typically a challenge for them to invest on that scale. So I would think that it's something that will happen, but at the moment hasn't been deemed necessary, particularly with so much of battery production capacity still remaining in the US. And really the, the cell production plants that have been built in, uh, you know, in other continents are much smaller, but also some haven't really started to ramp yet. So um, when they do, I expect... Um, we'll probably see a rush of, of capacity going elsewhere. But you know, as you say, it's yet to happen. It's something that does need to happen to ensure security of supply and also that we can locally deliver on, on at the, to the supply chain where we need it. I mean, Volkswagen has said kind of hard rock to hydroxide is the most clean, green, sustainable, right? And they're looking at call it lithium deposits. You would need lithium conversion, but you would also need, you know, cathode uh, nearby. I heard the cathode market in general is, is a very low margin business. You guys talked about the, the cobalt conundrum. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there's a there's a cathode conundrum for Europe and, and North America in particular. It's a very low margin business at the moment, not just for cathode production, but um, precursor production, refining. You know, they're getting squeezed on both sides by, by the miner and also getting squeezed by the auto companies. Well, the companies that will be able to survive in this very challenging industry is those that which are vertically integrated. So there's a number of players which don't just produce cathode. They may buy raw materials and produce... Um, um, precursors or, or battery chemicals and put that all the way through their own process to um, to cathode, which, of course, is value-add. There's a couple of manufacturers who operate their own mines, and, of course, that would be the ideal situation for them to operate from raw material all the way through to um, to cathode. So um, it, is a, it is a difficult market. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the next... As, as we, as I mentioned, Umicore gave a profit warning. We had um, also recently uh, Huayu, one of the biggest cobalt refiners in the world, who also does produce cathode, but a lot of cobalt chemicals. Um, they, their profits were down 98% in the first quarter. Um, you know, and this is a time when it's really critical for these companies to be investing in their own capacity and technology, but it's becoming more and more challenging to do so because of what's happening with volatility and raw material prices. And not only that, obviously, squeezed margins from the supply chain. So um, it is a difficult time for these players. And, you know, that's why we may see some consolidation and certainly vertical integration will help 
protect them from um, relative swings in um, margins in one specific part of the supply chain. Do you think the vertical integration is likely to happen with the battery, battery cell companies going into cathode or for companies like Albemol um, to get into cathode production from chemicals? It, it makes sense for cell manufacturers to, because they're going to have to work so closely with um, their cathode manufacturers because they'll be developing the technology together. Um, it, it, you know, it makes sense that we, we will see these really, really close relationships, um, JVs, for example. But ultimately, yeah, you might see acquisitions by the larger company, which would typically be the downstream company, the battery manufacturer or auto manufacturer, that direction, rather than upstream towards the, the miner who, you know, we haven't really seen that yet. But, you know, never say never. Um, this is a, a rapidly evolving supply chain with uh, not only uh, incumbent players, but a lot of new players as well. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenging one, but I would I would suspect it would be more kind of the cell manufacturer getting into cathode rather than than the uh, the producer of raw materials. Yeah, knowing Albemarle and Livent and those companies, I very much agree with that. And so, to the extent that they're being squeezed on both sides, you said on the on the miner and then on the battery side, if the battery company and cell company owns their 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 cathode it's a, a a balance of power kind of shift and it makes more sense it's more of a manufacturing process thank you very much casper really appreciate your time and uh, sharing your intel i'm priscilla barrera with the investing news network and here with me today is vivas kumar principal consultant supply chain at benchmark mineral intelligence vivas thank you so much for joining us today thank you for having me all right, so we're here in Vancouver at the Benchmark World Tour stop number seven, I believe. Um, to start, can you let us know how you're finding investor sentiment towards battery metals so far around North America and which raw material would you say it's the most popular right now? Absolutely. Investor sentiment and investor knowledge around battery materials has been steadily growing over the last few years. Two years ago, the message that we were delivering at these conferences was the fact that there was significant underinvestment because of the fact that there was a lack of knowledge in the space. Now, sophisticated investors are starting to get educated in the space, and now they're more actively looking for opportunities where to invest. So the trend is going in the right direction. All right. And you've recently joined Benchmark as a consultant, but we know that you worked at Tesla before. And since, since it's the first time we're speaking, can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Absolutely. I had an amazing time at Tesla. Very proud Model 3 owner. When I was at Tesla, I was responsible for battery raw materials sourcing. And I had worked quite a bit with the benchmark team, even in my role at Tesla. And when Simon approached me with the opportunity to join his team and help build up the capability of the value chain as a whole, based on experiences learned through on-the-ground procurement work, I thought it was an opportunity I couldn't refuse. Great, that's great. And um, in your expert opinion, what would you say is the current biggest misunderstanding about the electric vehicle supply chain? There's a large difference between the way in which commodities work and specialty chemicals work. And the materials that are needed for battery manufacturing are closer to specialty chemicals than they are commodities. That means that greater investment needs to be made, specifications will be tighter, the knowledge needed to produce these materials is much more specialized and the customers need to be involved in shaping the decision-making around the flow sheets from the very beginning, which is the reason why I chose to focus my entire speech for the World Tour on qualification, 
which hits on the crux of this issue that the specialty chemicals are very hard to produce and the qualification process to get to using these materials in the supply chain is quite complicated. Okay, and um, in your presentation, uh, you talked about uh, this qualification process, as you just mentioned, uh, the battery companies and automakers go through for the different raw materials. What would you say are some key factors that investors should consider about this process? The first is that qualification is widely differentiated between the battery players. There's no one-size-fits-all process. The second is that as you go towards higher tiers of manufacture, and the way that we define tiers is when it comes to quality, people who create more high-quality batteries, more high-quality vehicles, they're oftentimes going to have much more difficult and strenuous qualification processes. And the third is that the qualification process is something that is constantly changing based on changing regulations, first and foremost, but also based on the changing needs of a vehicle manufacturer and of a battery company shaped by the feedback that they're getting from their customers towards what types of products that they would like to make. Ultimately, the quality of raw materials flows through to the quality of the vehicle and affects the brand perception of an automotive manufacturer. And so as legacy automotive companies shift towards having large portfolios of EV products and try to differentiate those different products within different brand segments, they're going to have different needs for how the materials that go into batteries need to perform. And as a result, the qualification processes will also be changing over time. All right. And I know that you mentioned the different tiers uh, that you talked about on Benchmark. Do you want to expand a little bit more about that and whether this qualification process is easier for some tiers or not? I know that you just mentioned that it is a bit different. So do you want to expand on that? When we at Benchmark think of a tier one battery company, we're, as of today, talking about people like Panasonic and Tesla, LG Chem, Samsung SDI. These are companies that have produced batteries for decades and have produced batteries for vehicles that have extended ranges that compete with internal combustion engine. Tier two and tier three players are players that have either generally produced batteries for non-vehicle and non-energy storage applications, so mostly consumer electronics, or some of the newer companies that have emerged in this space. There is a very good likelihood that those who are in the lower tiers will be able to jump up into tier one as long as they prove a consistent track record of producing high-quality batteries that are consumed by major automotive companies for mass market applications over time. All right, and um, looking ahead, would you say, is there anything that could be done to streamline this process, make it faster, more efficient, or will we continue to see the same timeline as we enter the key 2020 decade? As we get to the point where automakers are starting to try to hit ambitious goals for electric vehicles, their needs and their demand for battery materials is going to be basically insatiable. They're going to need to have more suppliers on deck with whom they could work for these materials in order to meet their goals. As a result, they're going to need to qualify more players. It is in the best interest of an automaker or a battery maker to have a qualification process that's efficient, that is robust but easily communicated, and still maintains a high level of quality. So you are seeing a push now of automakers wanting to get involved in qualification when two years ago they wouldn't have even asked about it. And for automakers pushing battery producers to fasten 
or, or to make their qualification processes faster. That said, much of the burden of qualification in the beginning still falls on the material provider because effectively, just to be blunt, they're trying to prove to their end customer that they can produce a product consistently and reliably at a high level of quality over and over and over again to be used in the long run. And that, will, that characteristic will not change, that the earlier part of the process is going to be mostly focused on the performance of the material provider. All right, and my last question for you today, what would you say are some of the key factors investors should be paying attention to this year in the battery metal space, and maybe in particular as we enter the next decade in terms of the EV supply chain? One key to seeing how mature the supply chain is, is whether or not we see more announcements of automotive OEMs being directive and actually signing direct offtake contracts for battery materials like lithium, nickel, and cobalt in this space. We've seen several headlines recently. So, for example, this year we saw that Volkswagen announced a partnership with Ganfang Lithium out of China. We saw that BMW um, is discussing nickel from Mern Mern in Australia. So we're clearly seeing signs of action from automakers. And the more and more of these supply contracts that we see, my opinion is that that indicates a more mature supply chain and a more efficient supply chain into which sophisticated investors can put their capital into. All right, Rivas, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. In lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.